Good morning, good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Kimberly. Um, I'm really glad to be with you guys today. And from the passage that Sarah read, you may have noticed that we are talking about priesthood. So I'd like to take a minute and consider what comes to mind for you when you think about priesthood. Here are a few images that popped into my mind. Mailage. Beyond Princess Bride and Schitt's Creek, I have some personal associations with the word priest. I grew up Catholic, so when I think of priests, I think of men, obviously. My first feelings about priesthood were of exclusion. My little girl irritation that nuns were the less cool, not even close to equivalent option offered to women was intense, and it only grew when in high school I learned that Shakespeare used the word nunnery to refer to both a convent and a brothel. (laughs) And then the second thing that comes to mind for me is a sense of pomp and ritual, the priest's solemn walk toward the altar, the ceremony, the blessing, There was a magic and an awe in Mass. And I just sat and received that. Their chosen performed it, and I took it in. But when I was in high school, I was invited into a non-denominational megachurch by my boyfriend's mother. And when I say invited, I'm being (laughs) generous. Um, What she actually said is, if you're going to date my son, then you are going to come to church with us. And so I did. I would have anyway, didn't have to be so strong about it. Walking into Willow Creek was more like walking into a mall to me than to a church. And the pastors didn't wear robes, they wore jeans. They shared stories about their families, which they were allowed to have. And a couple of the pastors on the teaching team were women. So to me, a pastor was kind of like a priest who lived a regular life, more or less. They were still the expert, set apart and far away up on a stage. Um, So they were still highly regarded and elite, Uh, but they were a little more relatable to me. And really, anyone could be a pastor if they were a spiritual superstar and had it all together. At least uh, that's how it seemed to me at 16. Now in this passage, Peter isn't referencing a Christian leader at all, be it pastor or priest. His audience would have conjured up images of Hebrew priesthood. And unlike the Christian church, which was still being shaped in the time that the New Testament was written, the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, actually has a lot to say about what the priests were supposed to do in Israel. So let's talk a little bit about what we know about Hebrew priesthood. First, they mediated between God and his people. When hope was drooping, they told and retold the story of God's relationship with them. His rescue, his love, his miraculous interventions on their behalf, they were hope carriers. Second, they ministered according to God's instruction. The priests not only helped meet the needs of the community, but they also called the Jewish people to care for each other and follow the standards written out in the Torah to call for the poor. And so in this way, they were resource facilitators. And of course, we know they offered sacrifices on behalf of the Israelites. 
These rituals brought people into community. Now, sometimes this sacrifice was celebratory, part of a feast that created spiritual space for togetherness and communal remembrance. But often, they were sacrificing on behalf of an individual, a sign of their repentance to bring them back into good standing inside a community. So in this way, the priests were sacrificial relators. By taking on these three identities, Hebrew priests took care of the community spiritually as hope carriers, physically as resource facilitators, and socially as sacrificial relators. But of course, there was one more requirement for the Hebrew priesthood. They had to live as the religious elite. Hebrew priests could only come from one tribe in Israel, the Levites. These descendants of Abraham's son, Levi, were chosen by God as spiritual guides to the nation of Israel. It was a heavy responsibility, but it came with some perks. They held positions of honor. They had a lot of social and political clout. And they were cared for and fed by the very sacrificial system that they facilitated. But God held them at a high standard, too. For example, each year, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, which was this area at the very center of the temple, to make a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. But in order to do this, he had to be spiritually right before God, or he would die. <laughs> so just in case the other priest made him wear bells, and tied a rope to the high priest's leg when he went in, and if the bell stopped ringing while he was doing his thing, they would know that he had died, and they would drag his body out to avoid risking death themselves. And for all those years and into Jesus' day, the Holy of Holies was this place that only the biggest of spiritual superstars could even enter. But, in the moment of Jesus' death on the cross, a number of things started happening that gave the crowd pause. You can kind of imagine them glancing around at each other like, huh, we might have got this wrong. <laughs> Aside from the darkness in the middle of the day and the earthquake, the veil in the temple, the one barrier between the Holy of Holies and the not good enough, is mysteriously and instantly torn in two from top to bottom symbolically opening this area for us all. So when Peter's letter was read in early house churches, this is the priesthood that listeners would have likely had in mind. And Peter is writing to them saying, come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight, and like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then a few verses later, he continues, but you are a chosen priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the excellence of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now remember that before his crucifixion, Jesus referred to himself as a temple, saying that if they tore down this temple, he would raise it up again in three days. This was something they didn't quite understand until after his resurrection. <laughs> 
But Peter is calling upon that knowledge when he calls him a living stone, rejected by the powerful. But then he takes it further, saying that we are a part of this spiritual house, this temple that is being rebuilt. The elite priesthood has been torn down and replaced. And we're it. Every believer is a priest. As my mentor, Alan Hirsch, says, your baptism was your ordination. <laughs> Honestly, this wisdom around priesthood took some time to recognize in my own story, embarrassingly, though I had taught it a couple times. Um, but almost 15 years after I walked hesitantly into Willow Creek with my boyfriend's family, I found myself back at Willow and feeling nudged by God to engage at a deeper level. And we started volunteer leadership, and then almost accidentally I agreed to an internship at Willow, facilitating group life for their 20-something ministry. This is a great opportunity if you want to work 60 to 80 hours a week for free. Um, <laughs> for the first time, I was brave enough to consider that I might actually want to be a pastor. <clears throat> and for the next six lovely and sometimes terrible years, I wandered around church world, <laughs> trying to discern the right path, working for free, first at Willow, and then in a church plant, and then through parachurch ministries. I spent one exciting semester in seminary before admitting to myself that I had neither the time or the money to invest in this while I was working for free and raising a three-year-old. And that a master's in missional church studies would be unlikely to ever create any income to pay off that loan. <laughs> Our move to Texas complicated this a bit, too. Um, I was attending a church and volunteering at a pretty high level here in Austin, uh, not Vox, and realizing slowly that the culture around women, even in egalitarian spaces, was a little harder to navigate for me than it was in Chicago. One of my pastors posted a bit of a rant that men should never, ever, ever ride in a car or have lunch one-on-one -on -one with a woman because then you may end up divorced. It's very hard to do ministry when you're not allowed to talk to people. Um, and then, a few months later, the leaders returned from a vision retreat with a message for our church. They had prayed and they, they had heard God, and God had told them to invest in the men of the church. On this Sunday, they revealed this grand plan. They said nothing at all to the women. They did not acknowledge the women in the room. Um, and so, so I sat in that room, and I had some questions. And so I set a meeting, and that meeting didn't go super well for me. <laughs> the conversation was actually kind of devastating, and about 20 minutes in, another one of our pastors suggested that maybe I wasn't cut out for church leadership. And guys, I thought, maybe I'm not. Not even in like a pained way, but like in a, oh my gosh, that is such a relief kind of way. I was tired, and the idea of letting go of this calling felt like the most freeing suggestion. And he must have seen it on my face because he really tried to walk it back. Um, but it was like a switch had flipped in me, and I was done. I was like, I just got this calling thing wrong. And so I started thinking, what could I do where I would actually make money and Jack could actually go to college and things? And so. <laughs> 
<laughs> getting paid is the best, guys. I love getting paid. Um, so, <laughs> so I started a corporate-facing business doing speaking and consulting around leadership and team dynamics. And I started to get paid actual money instead of kingdom dividends. And I stepped down from the volunteer role I was in at the church. And I sat in the back of the church and just asked God to start healing the pieces that were broken in me. And it was in the back row of that church, six months later, that very same church, that God whispered to me, you do know you're still doing ministry, right? <laughs> I was doing leadership development and small group dynamics in corporations, <laughs> just sort of like a black bag ops, group life pastorate. Our biggest client these days is a local construction company, <laughs> and Ben likes to joke that I'm basically the pastor of this rough and tumble crew. <laughs> Another person told me I'm their emotional support human, I was like, I'll take it. Priesthood does not require a business card with a church logo. It requires a heart for the people around you. And we may be a new priesthood, but the objectives are actually pretty similar. First, we are called to be hope carriers. Look at what Peter says right after he tells them they are a chosen priesthood. He says, in order that you may proclaim excellence of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice what he is not saying here. In order that you can teach perfect theology with your amazing seminary degree. In order that you can inspire others by attaining peak religiosity. No. You just have to be called from darkness into light. That's the requirement here. If God has invited you into a better story, you have hope to offer. Even if you're still wrestling in the darkness, even if the darkness to light graph of your life isn't a perfect path up into the right. So as we consider what it means to be called as hope carriers, let's take a moment to reflect. This is the part where you guys get to bring this into your story, and that's the way that it takes. Otherwise, you just walk out of here and you're like, Kimberly is fun, but I have no idea what she said. So this is the time, okay? How is God moving me from darkness into marvelous light? And I want to give you a moment just to think, to allow the Holy Spirit to nudge you. Now, if you're the journaling type, and I know not all of us are, these also make a great periodic prompt, these questions that we're going to ask today. Because if we are called to proclaim hope into the world, then we will need to slow down enough every once in a while to notice what God is doing in our stories. Not just in this moment, but in all the moments to come. So next, we are still resource facilitators. We are need meters. And sometimes that means that we can give out of what we have in order to help. But often it means that we can connect people with resources, help draw a map towards hope, towards enough, the priesthood is a fabric of community, and when, as we know each other, we know where the resources are. Throughout this series, we've been looking for wisdom in Philippians 2.3, which frankly can feel a little bit scary to me. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, 
But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you not look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Nothing? <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Um, also, some people are better than me, but like everyone, <laughs> that feels unlikely. I'm not a serial killer. I don't think the author is inviting us into a losing game of competitive humility here. He's not ranking people. He's instructing them about how they can choose to see each other as important and beloved and worthy of care. And if the readers are receptive, those same well-regarded people will respond by turning that lens back on them. This verse actually only works when we balance each other out. I can look out for your interest and you can look out for mine. So let's take a moment and reflect on this piece. What needs might God be making me aware of in my relational sphere? And do I have capacity to help or connect them with resources? And as you ask this question, I want you to close your eyes and look around your relational world and ask the Holy Spirit if he has something to tell you, something to show you, something to nudge you around. Okay. Now those first two bullet points are easy, right? But then we get to the third. Things get a little dicey. Because we are still sacrificial relators. Yes, Jesus effectively ended the sacrificial system, making something better possible for us, and that is a huge relief, especially to Wei, because we will not need to sacrifice any animals in the sanctuary today. Not too long ago, Jenna preached from Romans chapter 12, which asks us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. All right, guys, quick story about this slide. <laughs> you may not realize this, but when non-staff community members like me preach at Vox, it's actually Christopher who makes all of the slides. Um, and this week, I went to Mexico para mis cumpleaños, and I was not in town. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, and I wanted to send him the slides, but I also had something that I needed to leave for at a specific time. And so I sent this slide with a note that said something like, reference Jenna's serving on living sacrifice. Got to find the reference. Uh, anyway, when I got home from Cabo, I looked at my slides, and Christopher had not only found and placed the reference, but he had hilariously included a freeze frame from Jenna's homily. So I now have a new goal for my preaching which is to sneak in pictures of Wei and Christopher and Vanessa into any future homily. Anyway, Jenna talked to us about treating our bodies as living sacrifices. And her homily has really stayed with me in a way that I think is important for us today. Because this is where the role of this new priesthood really starts to diverge from the role of Hebrew priesthood. You see, the Hebrew priests used the sacrificial system to bring people into connection and reconciliation via violence. The practice was wrapped up in ceremony, yes, but its essence was still blood and fire, and it reeked of death. Ben said, also barbecue, when I was reading this yesterday. Um, 
But when the lamb of God was sacrificed, death didn't take. Jesus lives. And so while we may sacrifice greatly at times on behalf of love, our sacrifice should never reek of death. Our living sacrifice can still bring people into connection and back into right relationship, though. And there are unending ways that we could do this. It could look like inviting someone to sit at our table even though we enjoy the group as it is. Or a choice to have less so that someone else can have enough. It might be an act of forgiveness when we'd rather hold a grudge or an awkward apology when we've caused harm. We might show up for community when we'd rather stay on the couch or show up for community when we actually don't know any of these people and it feels terrifying. Maybe we're offering a well-timed hug even after we've had kids crawling all over us all day. Or mentoring someone who's made a big mistake. Listening and asking questions and resisting the urge to judge or roll your eyes or say, I told you so. But just as Jenna shared with us, ours is a living sacrifice. We can't ignore our own needs either. We need to lean into the embodied experience of priesthood to care and receive care for ourselves. And as I have made my personal quest since Jenna's message, to try softer. And as the saying goes, you don't have to light yourself on fire to keep someone else warm. And as a friend of mine often adds, there are blankets, geez. A living sacrifice is never a ritual of slaughter. It can't be. We may love sacrificially, but we are also beloved. So we need to move in the world in ways that are life-giving. Sometimes we need to turn that priestly gaze inward and see ourselves clearly and respond with tenderness. Even as we are inviting others into community, we must remember that we are invited as well. So let's pause and reflect here. How might I step out of my comfort zone to bring people into community or to step more fully into community myself? And finally, priesthood requires religious elitism, right? Not anymore, friends. That tale is, is that veil is torn. <laughs> we are midway through this vision series where we are exploring the Vox value of posture. You've been hearing from us about how we are dreaming of a church that moves and breathes in the world from a place of love and gifting and bandwidth, rather than operating out of rigid hierarchy. For this to happen, we need more than to simply dismantle the scaffolding of hierarchy. We need you. The vision Peter is sharing in today's passage is for a shared priesthood, a church that we all own, that we all shape, a collective of priests who are discerning and moving together. Now, hopefully you're getting very familiar with this Vox value of posture. And here is where I think that value overlaps the most with priesthood. 
We have God's DNA, yet live within our shadow, ashamed to live the fullness of God's vision for our lives. Humility is choosing to see ourselves and others more accurately, both our light and darkness. Each person has profound intrinsic worth and carries God's spark. We need you. You may think that because you haven't gone to seminary or because you've made mistakes or because other churches have turned you away or because you have no desire to ever, ever, ever work at a church, that you should just leave the priesthood to the professionals. But when you do that, our priesthood here at Vox is lesser. Our warmth takes a hit when we don't have your particular spark. But to make this spiritual house To create this shared space, there are things that we must release. Now, it's hard work for pastors to release the elite status and power that comes with being the one or the few in charge. And our pastors and our NAV team have been sitting in the discomfort of that and and doing the work of that. But what's harder work sometimes, grueling even, is for churchgoers to release the privilege of consuming church as a passive recipient. We have been socialized to expect certain things from our pastors and our communities. We want to show up to this space without hoping to create it. But if we want coffee and homemade bread and a clean floor, then we might just have to get involved. We expect our pastors to have all the answers get everything right. And I'll tell you something, guys. As someone who's worked in many churches, nothing will fix that perspective for you than working alongside human beings trying to get everything right. It's very stressful. (laughs) It's impossible. And sometimes we'd rather not do the work of deciding ourselves if what is said from the front of this room feels true. We want our pastors to notice us and listen with care, but it takes a lot of energy to also be part of providing that care. If we're being honest, sometimes we are more comfortable with the idea of no priests than with the idea of being priests ourselves. And this is the danger that we face here at Vox in this season. As our pastors and staff do the work of shifting this paradigm, We will experience loss if we do not do our own work as well. We may have to sacrifice comfort in order to take on the mantle of priesthood. But remember that this is a living sacrifice. To step back into our value of posture, we strive to see ourselves and others more accurately, both our light and our darkness. I know a lot of priests and pastors who feel no freedom to acknowledge their darkness, their exhaustion, their loneliness, their uncertainty. We do not want to bring this lack of freedom into the way that we do priesthood, friends. There will be times when we will find ourselves broken and emptied out without much to offer. Seasons where the Holy Spirit is working in our story in a way that takes every ounce of energy that we have available to us. You may be in this season today. 
Maybe just getting here this morning was the holy work. And I want to make sure that you hear this. If we are all priests, then we are also all recipients of priesthood. Peter is writing to the church about a collective priesthood. This is not an individualized guilt trip. If everyone is a priest, then who are we ministering to? To each other, friends. We co-create community with God, and if we're doing it right, we partake in it also. We don't have to choose whether we are the one being rescued or the one doing the saving, because we will be rescued, and we will rescue. To borrow one more time from Jenna, a few weeks ago she shared this picture as a very different kind of org chart. And I was already thinking about this sermon, and I looked at this picture, and I started thinking about how it captures how we all have differing measures of joy and pain or energy and exhaustion from day to day. Now, we're at Vox, so obviously the coffee is the magic in this metaphor. And it turns out I'm allergic to milk, so that nearly white cup might just kill me. Um, have you ever felt like life might be trying to kill your spirit? <laughs> felt downright allergic to the exigency in which you find yourself? <laughs> Look, sometimes my cup is straight magic, and in those moments, I have a lot to offer. But sometimes life is so hard that there is almost no coffee in that cup. And it's okay, because I am not the only delicious coffee beverage on that tray. Your capacity or your lack thereof this morning doesn't change your calling. You're just making your way around the circle of interdependency, partaking in the collective wisdom in our space. And it only works if we're all in it, being honest about our light and our darkness. So one more time, let's reflect. What hesitancies do you have when you consider yourself in relationship to priesthood. And I want to take one more moment to just close our eyes and ask the Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts and help us see what it means for us to live as a priest in our community. And as that question rolls around inside you, I want to share with you a bit from one of my favorite theologians, gone too soon, Rachel Held Evans, who did so very much to create a spiritual house for those of us who have been historically locked out. She said, the difference between the clergy and the laity is often perceived as more vast than it is, which leads to all sorts of trouble, from abusive and authoritarian churches, to the idolization of religious leaders, to unhealthy and unhappy pastors who struggle to manage the weight of the expectations placed upon them, to Christians who miss the full depth of their own callings because they believe ministry is something other people do. To be called into the priesthood, as all of us are, is to be called into a life of presence, of kindness, such a purpose calls us far beyond our natural postures. Let's pray. Lord, 
May we neither center ourselves or forget ourselves as we step together in the priesthood. Call us beyond our natural posture into a life of presence and kindness. Amen.